Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 449 with Marissa Orr. This is a juicy one and maybe controversial, provocative, and I hope it's controversial and provocative in a good way. We are going to talk a bit about the gender gap, leaning in versus leaning out, and systems and structures and strengths and how we perceive them and deploy them. And, and I think it's really fascinating to get the wheels turning in some interesting ways. We cover a wide array of viewpoints and voices on the show, and I think that as so long as we got actionable wisdom that sharpens universal skills required to flourish at work from relevant, authoritative, and engaging voices, I want to hear about it. I did, a fun fact, invite, I guess, the, the foil to Marissa Orr's perspective, uh, Cheryl Sandberg. I invited her on the program through her publicist, but uh, they declined at the time, so I don't know, maybe they'll change their mind after this, but uh, I think it's a juicy one. And if it makes you angry, I think it's good to think a bit, little bit about you know what's behind that. And if it makes you say, right on, girl, then th- that's interesting too. So I think you're in for a treat. Well, without further ado, you're going to learn one, the problem with the lean-in mentality. Two, how power and money trigger value judgments when it comes to gender differences. And three, why strengths depend on context. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to Adam's reference or the boatload of research we cite, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F449. And now here is Marissa's story. Marissa Orr began her Google career over 15 years ago as a founding member of Google's sales operations and strategy team, after which she worked as vertical marketing manager at Facebook. She's conducted talks and workshops for thousands of people at diverse organizations across the globe. Originally from Miami, she now lives in New Jersey with her three children. So thanks to Marissa for hanging out with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Marissa. Marissa, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to dig into your perspectives. I I think it will be uh, provocative in in a fun, (laughs) thought-provoking kind of a way. But maybe before we go there, let's hear about your love for reality TV. (laughs) It's a great way to start out in terms of setting my credibility, but that's okay. So to my escape, I actually have... I don't watch it as much as I used to. Years ago, I lived on Bravo, a steady diet of Bravo TV, Real Housewives of New York, New Jersey, Atlanta, LA, wherever. And I've always been a big fan of The Bachelor and things like that. In the past few years, 
my time has been crunched and I haven't gotten to watch it nearly as much as I would like to, but I'm still a fan. I'm, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not ashamed. You know, my brother loves the Real Housewives as well. And you articulate from your worldview and uh, preferences and values and such. Like, what is it that you dig about uh, the show? No judgment. I, I genuinely want to understand you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no offense taken. Like I said, no, no, no shame here about it. So I think if I'm really kind of digging into why these shows appeal to me so much, and I don't mean to turn it into something highbrow because it's certainly not, but I have always just been fascinated by the drama of humanity. And yeah. these women on this show are such caricatures of people that we all know in some way that I just find it fascinating in terms of even just like observing people and how they act. For example, on The Bachelor, I also love to guess based on what I'm reading from The Bachelor and the contestants or whatever, their body language, what they're saying. It's fun for me to guess who's going to make it on to the next round. It sharpened my ability to sort of read people's behavior. And when you're right, it feels great. And when you're wrong, you learn something. So that's really The Bachelor. But Real Housewives is just an escape. It's drama. It's kind of like why do people like to watch sports, right? They're not participating in the sport. It gives them a little kick, right? To like root for a team. I think it's a similar thing. It's, it gives me a little kick. It's fun. I find these people crazy and hilarious and I work so much. I make so many decisions every day. It's fun to just watch other people and kind of laugh at them <laughs> or with them. I hear that sometimes at the end of the day, it's like, I want to do the opposite of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yes. There's nothing wrong with it, I think, as long as it's uh, in moderation, I suppose. Well, now I want to hear about your book, Lean Out. What's the big idea here? So Lean Out is really, quite obviously, a counter argument to lean in, but really a counter argument to most of modern day feminism, because we have been throwing the same solutions at the gender gap and at women at work for 20 years, and virtually nothing has changed in terms of the numbers. The first part of Lean Out really explains everything that modern feminism and conventional wisdom, frankly, has gotten wrong about women at work. And one of those things, a broad theme, is that equality doesn't mean we all have to be the same. We don't have to like the same things, want the same things, get the same things. I mean, after all, diversity is about diverse set of interests, talents, strengths, perspectives, and experience. So that's one of the big, the one of the big themes. There's a lot more underneath that, but I don't know if you want me to go further or. Oh, sure. We're talking about all kinds of things. Okay. I'd say one of the themes in your book is, as you say, that there is a systemic dysfunction in our workplaces. Can you kind of paint the picture there? You know, what is it that is broken? Well, let me set that up, that answer up first with a little bit more detail around the difference in the premise of lean in and lean out. The general premise of lean in really pins the blame on women for the gender gap. And the prescriptions for success hinge on women acting more like men 
So being more ambitious and assertive, whereas lean out really pins the blame on our institutions, which have not changed since the industrial age at a time where there were no women, virtually no women in, in the workforce. And since then, our entire economy has transformed and the composition of our workforce. But these structures, these competitive hierarchies have remained exactly the same. And one of the things that I point, ask in the book is, you know, what makes more sense? Rewiring women and their personalities and what they want or rewiring a system to better meet the needs of a more diverse workforce. I think with part of my problem with lean in and that whole school of thought is that it dismisses women's wants and needs as a product of culture. And I think instead of dismissing women's needs, we should embrace them because men and women a lot of times want different things at work. And we should embrace those differences instead of sort of dismissing what you know women's concerns are and attributing it to a product of cultural oppression. Okay. Oh, all right. So the, oh, there's so much good stuff to dig into here. So first, I just want to get really clear on terms here. So when you say the gender gap, what are we talking about here? I refer to the gender gap to explain the fact that there's 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs, for example, are women, or there's a highly disproportionate amount of the C-suite and executives in corporate America are men. And it's a great question because in the beginning of the book, I really define the scope, which is corporate America, which is very mm -hmm. different dynamics than, you know, small businesses or education, education, or even things like being a doctor or a lawyer. One way to look at that is through the lens of academia, which you mentioned. So women dominate academia and they have for many, many years. A big question is, why doesn't that dominance last after graduation? And the conventional wisdom, again, points to, you know, culturally reinforced behavior of women bodes well in school, but not in the corporate world. Whereas my argument is that that's not the explanation. What's really happening is in school, performance is graded objectively. If you get 94 out of 100 questions, right? It doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter how long you study. You still got a 94. And in the corporate world, especially in today's knowledge economy, it's really hard to tell who's doing a good job. We don't have grades. So we grade instead of on competence, we grade on visibility. Who is talking about their work the loudest and the most? And all these really visible behaviors that correlate more highly with men, but they don't. That's interesting how the grades go, like when it's subject to a, a human interpretation, like, oh, I, I like that behavior. I don't like that behavior, you know, then that can work against women in, in your worldview. And so then I guess now I'm intrigued. And I guess when it comes to sales, like that's one of the grand sort of fair zones of performance. It's like, there you go. How many sales did you make? You know, we got a number. And, and so we can uh, compare that there. So do women fare better in sales? I don't actually know that answer. I don't actually know that either, but I think it's huh, a good question, but I think there's so many kinds of sales and so many industries. I think the context is really important, but it's, it's a really interesting question. And I haven't looked at it through the lens of just sales. Okay. So I, I'm with you. And that is intriguing. I remember when I was at my cousin graduated from high school a couple of years ago, and I was beholding all of the valedictorians and I was a male valedictorian in high school. But uh, they were outnumbered like four to one. 
<laughs> there was like 80% of the valedictorians were women. It was like, interesting. It is interesting. And then the numbers uh, in terms of, you know, hey, colleges, in terms of getting into college and then not flunking out of college are also more so in favor to women. And so I, I guess I'm really intrigued when you talk about the, the systemic dysfunction. You, you had a great video in which you've shared some statistics associated with how many men versus women want to be the CEO. And, and, and can you share that piece for us? Yeah. So one of the statistics I cite in the book is the fact that only 18% of women aspire to sort of executive or C-level roles versus 35% of men. And I think what you're talking about is that when I said that means the majority of the population doesn't want to be the CEO, why right. don't we look at what's wrong with the job instead of all the people who don't want it? Indeed. Yeah. yeah I, think that, I think that's a compelling point there. So, so so, what is wrong with the job and the systems and the hierarchies and the competitiveness? You say it's old. It's, it's from the Industrial Revolution. And, and so mm-hmm. what about that is suboptimal here now today? There's just so many things to talk about with respect to this. So if I go off on a tangent on any of them, just raid me back in. But oh, sure thing. I did want to dovetail off that earlier point quickly, because part of it is not just the system, it's how we're measuring female progress, right? Because obviously one of the measurements that we use is positions like CEOs and corporate executives. So only 18% of women desire to be a corporate CEO. That means the majority of women don't want to be one, right? Mm -hmm. So if we push them to do it anyway, and they get the corner office, but they sit there sad and alone, I mean, can we really call that success? And I think that goes back to what I mean about embracing women's stated desires. Like if we did a study on how many men want to run their household and do the majority of chores and, and domestic tasks... I wouldn't think it would be much more than 18% either, but, you know, we don't sort of make nationwide campaigns to push up those numbers. So we judge sort of what women do in a way or what women want in a way that we never really do with men. You know, that is intriguing. And you talk about the campaigns and I've sort of wondered, you know, we've got sort of the gender wage gap with, I don't know the number of cents now, 72-ish cents on the dollar. But I sometimes I wonder about like the gender child time gap, like, you know, men only spend 41 minutes on the hour with their children as compared to women. But I don't see that campaign being made. That's right. And, and so I, I think you're you're really on to something like discrimination and, and bad behavior totally happen. But you're saying, hey, let's take a look at what people actually want <laughs> as we're evaluating things. Yeah. I mean, what a revolutionary idea, right? Actually measure female progress based on what women say they that would make them happy or, or uh, make them sort of improve their well-being, which is a whole other chapter, which is in the book called Well-Being Versus Winning, Measuring Female Progress on Well-Being Instead of Winning, like how we're winning against men or in the corporate world. So, but should I go back to your question about what I mean? With- oh, please, Cole, can you continue? Okay. I was going to go back to the original question, which was, I think, how the systems are, are broken. So, One of the ways is what I mentioned about grading on visibility versus competence, because in a knowledge economy and anyone who works in a big corporation knows that it's really hard to tell these days who's doing a good job. When your job is to create marketing campaigns and strategies and even service customers, most people don't even agree on what success looks like, let alone 
know mm-hmm. who's achieving such success or making an impact. And we talk about creativity and imagination, but those things are really hard to see and measure. So one of the ways that it's broken is that we really use these subjective and emotional measures, which are riddled with biases to determine who's doing a good job. And we default to these, these proxies, but another way is the reward system. So once you get past a certain level of management and make a certain salary, the only reward really that's there to motivate people to climb higher and higher up the corporate ladder is power, more power over more people. Right, because you're saying the money, you already got more money than you need, so doesn't do much for you to go from two million to two and a quarter million. Exactly. So when you look at what's driving those people to keep going, it's power. And research is fairly conclusive that that kind of power, and power is a lot of definitions, but I'm talking about professional like authority, power that's based on your position in a hierarchy. It's not universally motivating. And a lot of women are left sort of unsatisfied. And it seems so obvious, right? We learned in kindergarten, everybody likes different things, but at work, there's only that one thing. So naturally the winners are going to be the ones who liked that one thing more than anybody else. So if you power lovers, (laughs) get the power. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) What kind of, one of the things I joke about, but like, have you ever seen a corporate CEO that is kind of more like a hippie than like a Gordon Gecko? No, (laughs) they all, the profile of winners are always going to be the same if you're only motivating a very narrow subset of your, your workforce. So one of the things I talk about is increasing the variety of incentives there's other ones too, but I'll pause here if you want to go in a different direction or have a... Well, that's cool. Yeah. So it's a good point. I mean, just while we're there, what are some of the other incentives that should be on the menu? Well, research also shows that women have less, their life goals are, fewer of them are focused on this kind of power. They have a, they have more life goals and they're more varied. And some of that is balance. I would have traded $50,000 worth of my salary for increased flexibility. But those things in the corporate world are looked at as, let's say, weakness, right? If you're not in the office as much as somebody else, you're not going to get the work assignments, the recognition, and the respect if you're only there part-time it's not only just the incentives, it's really how those incentives are, are viewed. Right. Right. So that's one example. The truth is when I talk to women who've read the book, one of the things that really resonates with them is the part where I say that people say women lean out or, you know, don't want to lean in once they have kids or childcare and all that stuff. And that's all very true. But I think there's another reason. And I think when women start having kids and get into more of their like middle to later thirties with their time squeezed, they have dramatically lower tolerance for the office politics and BS, frankly. And so many women I know want to go to work and do a great job and they want work that's meaningful, but there is just so much politics and bureaucracy and stuff that really doesn't matter. So I think that's another another big reason that you don't see women wanting to climb higher and higher. It's just not 
good, competent work is not rewarded. And so what is left there for women at the office, but these power games that they have no interest in playing? Yeah, oh, certainly. Well, that, that makes sense. And especially, you know, if you you have less time, your opportunity cost is increased and you see that junk, you're like, why am I spending my life in this? Exactly. <laughs> let's do something else. So that, that makes sense. Exactly. Well, well, so then well, let's share a bit about strengths that are, are more often associated with women and more often associated with men. So well, I want to get your take, first of all, just because, you know, some folks are not even on board with that notion that, that men and women yeah. are, are different. And in fact, I found an American Psychological Association brief entitled Men and Women, No Big Difference. So mm-hmm. what's your take on this one? Yeah. So it's interesting. I have so many things to say on this point. But with respect to that study, I have to look at it and see what that headline really captures, because sometimes there are, are nuances. But I think what it's probably referring to is the fact that men and women largely are the same when it comes to personality traits. There's, I think it's something like 60% overlap. So yeah, that makes sense. However, at the extremes and, you know, 40% is not insignificant. There are differences after all, you know, testosterone is proven to run. You know, we all know that that is men have more and women have more estrogen and that those hormones influence our behavior. So I don't think that we can sidestep that sort of biological fact. But the other thing is, I don't know, I have two boys and a girl and everybody talks about freely. Oh, boys are like this. Girls are like this. There are certain elements of their behavior and personality that are different. And we joke about it. And if you say to your mom friend or, or whatever, Oh, my boys are are so wild. Your girls play so nicely. Girls are, you know, they're not as rambunctious, whatever. Nobody accuses you of, of being sexist for saying that it's kind of something we all intuitively see with our own eyes. But the second you put an element of, of power into the equation, people go crazy and take, take a lot of issue with that. I mean, for example, when the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are For Venus, Where From Venus came out all those right. years ago, I don't recall that being a controversial thing. It was focused on the therapeutic and communication aspect to it. So we accept that in a way. But when it comes to power and money, I think people really take issue because they believe that if we say men and women are different, that it's implying one's better than the other, or one's weak and one's strong. If you say more women like red and more men like green, there's nothing offensive about that. How dare you, Marissa? Right. <laughs> people would accept that without an argument if that's what a study said. People wouldn't bat an eye. But it's when you put in things like women don't want professional authority as much as men, people start to see that as They start making value judgments on it. I think that's really people's issue is the value judgment. When you say, when you report on things like this, if they perceive one is better than the other, it makes people defensive. But Mm. when I say women don't want professional authority as much, I don't mean women don't want power. Power is a much broader concept. And that's just one kind of power. I think women wield incredible amount of power in this world. They just, it's not the power through a male worldview. Men have a very different relationship to to power. So the power of men and women wield are different in a lot of ways. 
And the only reason that would be offensive is if somebody's making a value judgment on one being better than the other. That's an interesting perspective there. So, so folks tend to get really riled up when it has to do mm-hmm. with power. But if it's about boys and girls and what they do in the play yard or, or color preferences, then it's it's you know, no big deal. So, okay. Or like, if you say men like sports, watching sports more than women and you know, women like, (laughs) yeah, right. Like nobody cares when you say it on things that that they don't believe is no superior. And and it's intriguing as when you talk about sports now, we're we're talking about consumer activity. I mean, now it's, these are just facts that every marketer knows like, well, yeah, I mean, this, this product is interesting for women or for men, which is why we're pursuing, you know, advertising in particular channels, because those are also consumed disproportionately more so by women, more so by men. Fun fact, the vast majority of my audience is women. Hi girls. Is that interesting? How do we also? (laughs) (laughs) Hi ladies. (laughs) But we also have uh, about a quarter, uh, gentlemen. So hello to you as well. Hello, men. (laughs) Okay. So with that being established, then what are some of the research findings about the strengths that show up at work that uh, are more so tend to be represented more frequently in, in women and then more so represented among men? Yeah. Something is a strength only in context, right? Because let's take the corporate world, which is mostly competitive. Google and Facebook, it was a zero-sum game. It was a very intensely competitive. I mean, people think of these companies as very sort of progressive, new wave, you know, organizations, but their structures are exactly like any other corporation. And these are very intense zero-sum games. If if my teammate gets a promotion, it means I didn't. Even performance scores are graded on distributions where you can't be equally amazing as your peer. You you have to be a little more amazing or a little less amazing. So it's all very intensely competitive. And in that context, some of the common behaviors and traits of men show up as strength. So men are more motivated by competition. And research shows that in competitive scenarios, they perform better. So in the corporate world, you, you see that as a strength, right? But research also shows that women are more collaborative and they are not as satisfied or motivated by these, these zero-sum games. They prefer uh, win-win scenarios. But in the corporate world, there's not many, <laughs> you don't come by much of that. So you, in that context, even though collaboration is a strength in many re- respects in the corporate world, it becomes not a strength. <laughs> and research shows that women perform worse in competitive environments. Their performance uh, suffers. They become less creative. And then the opposite happens when it's collaborative. So that's what I mean by strengths depend on, on the context, right? Well, and that's an outstanding example. Could you lay it on us? What, what are some other strength representations that we, we see more so with men versus women or vice versa? There's a thing I talk about in the book, a story. There's a book called The Confidence Code. And I really sort of try to unravel its premise. But one of the stories from the book that I talk about that they have is there's a woman giving a presentation in a room and she sort of starts to hesitate before she moves on to the next point. She tries to get a a temperature of the room so she knows which way to go next in her presentation. And a man, her it was I think her manager, who is a man, talked to her afterward because 
you know, he saw that hesitation as lack of confidence, right? And he said, you know, these things hurt women and they show up as less confident. When I read that story, my first thought was she's demonstrating empathy. More women have a talent for taking the temperature of a room, building consensus. So that was my interpretation of what she did there. And if the goal was to really build a consensus as a team and move forward, she was doing great. If the goal is to act like you know everything and that you have this unfailable certainty and are decisive, then she failed at that, right? So what do we want from people at work is the question, but that consensus building is another strength that, and again, could be interpreted as weakness depending on your perspective. Oh, that's great. Give us some more, some typical men's strengths, typical women's strengths. So let's see another example. Again, context. There's times where you need a really authoritative voice where certain situations call for a display of dominance in a room to align people towards something. Research shows that men communicate with the intent to establish sort of authority. So in situations that call for it, that comes out as a strength for many men. And I want to make one thing clear too. When I say, you know, men are like this and women are, are like this, I'm, I'm obviously not talking about all men and all women, a mm-hmm. good portion, you know, it could be upwards of, you know, maybe 30% of men have some strength that's female dominant. Like these aren't black and white things. I just talk about them that way. Cause then if I created all those right. nuances, our conversation would be 10 hours long. It also doesn't mean that men should behave one way and women should behave another. I mean, the goal is to behave authentic to who you are. These are just more reports of like observations on patterns of behavior. So that, that that's an important distinction. Maybe it's mm-hmm. obvious. I don't know. Oh, it's handy. Sure. Thank you. Well, what else we got there? Wow. Let's see. Empathy, cooperative, consensus building, win-win for women. That's, that's a lot, no? <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's more in the book. <laughs> Do men have anything? <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned the- Competitive, authoritative, dominance. Yeah. Uh, assertiveness, things like that. Okay. Well, well, so then- so given that, how do we go about, you know, leveraging these strengths optimally and, you know, both to get great results as, as well as to, you know, look good doing it, to, to get our props and advance? Yeah. Well, there's a few things. One is just how we frame this conversation. And first, we need to stop measuring women against what men have. And we need to stop thinking about female progress in terms of winning and really kind of reorient to well-being because then we're serving the largest issues for women, for people who need it most. So it's really about how we measure it. I think also, you know, people are diverse by their very nature, right? The reason that that diversity is not reflected at the top of the corporate world is because it rewards a subset of that behavior. And so I think first we need to recognize that our institutions as they are today are are limited and they're not built to fulfill on lots of people's needs. So 
for women, I think the first step is always to turn inward and really kind of untether yourself from how your company defines success and how your peers define success and really better understand how you as a person define it. What is most important to your well-being? If a promotion is going to get you a rung higher, but you're playing more politics, which you hate, and you're working longer hours, which you don't want. Like that is not your definition of success. And it's okay to set the terms for what you need and what you want. So a lot of this is really on an individual to learn more about what their own strengths are, how they can put those to work in a corporate setting while understanding that that setting might not be designed to capitalize on those strengths. So a lot of it is about figuring out how your institution organization can meet your needs, how they can't, and then how you yourself can fill the gaps. All right. I dig it. Well, and then when it comes to some of the just stuff that's broken, I mean, do you have any kind of, you know, short-term tactics like, okay, you know, broken system, what are some maybe, you know, self-defense tactics or or things that uh, you got to do just to make sure you don't get an unfair shake? Yeah. Well, I go into a whole chapter about this in the book. There's so many things to say to all these great questions, but I think ultimately we have to own our own path and our own success. So for people suffering, I mean, can you be more specific so I can like give you kind of maybe a personal story of how I handled something of that nature? Oh, sure. Well, so for example, if there's tons of subjectivity going on and you got the right stuff, you're bringing it and and delivering good things, but it doesn't seem to be kind of noticed, appreciated, rewarded, like what do you do? Yeah. Well, I think people need to get really clear with their management team or their direct manager about how their success is being measured. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation we rarely have with our manager at the beginning of performance season. You know, we talk more about, or at least in my experience and at Google and Facebook, we really talked much more about what our goals were more so than what success looked like. So your personal goals as an individual professional? No, no, no. Your work goals. So okay, the work goals. for example, if you talk with your manager at the beginning of every quarter about what your goals are, right? Mm-hmm. For the quarter, let's say you have five of them. Let's say we build this new order entry system and we, we get 50% there by the end of the quarter, right? That's your goal. One okay. important question to ask is, well, how are you measuring if we get to 50%? What does 50% look like? What does 100% look like? What is like a bad job on this specific goal look like? It's a question we rarely ask, but at the end of the quarter, if you get a bad grade, if you haven't asked how you're being measured, you don't really have anything to stand on. But if your manager at the beginning of the quarter says, well, if we get X, Y, and Z in place, then we've reached 50%. Then at the end of the quarter, you can show whether or not you reached X, Y, and Z. That's a much more objective way of communicating how well you did that quarter. Does that make sense? Right. Uh, understood. So you want to get crystal clear on, okay, these these numbers, you know, what's the numerator? What's the denominator? Or what the expectations are. What does success look like? Paint me a picture. Like, what are the five things that need to be sort of very clearly accomplished for me to exceed expectations this quarter. I think the more specific and objective 
things that you can get from your manager, the easier it is to make a case for your performance. Oh, that's great. More tips like this, please lay them on us. Yeah. Well, it's hard though, because in most positions in corporate America, your manager has absolute power over you and your livelihood. And even when you get a bad grade and you don't deserve it, there's really no recourse. So sometimes all of this advice is meaningless because you are basically, your career is at the whim of this person with total power over you. It's it's kind of like tyranny by another name. So I think until our corporations have better systems in place to like checks and balances on some of that power so that if you did do those five things and you still got a bad grade, there's something in the company that you can, uh, a team or, you know, HR is really mostly there to, to serve the people in power. So I would say HR, but they're not set up with any uh, real authority to help. So I think part of the onus is on organizations to rebalance that power a little bit to the employees so that if you do a good job and you do get a bad grade, if you have these objective measures, like I don't want to say a court, like, you know, a trial, there needs to be some recourse and and showing these objective metrics helps that as well. Okay, cool. I just want to be real about it, you know, because so much business advice that people give in theory is great. But when you're in a power structure under somebody with total power over you, it's kind of doesn't matter. Oh, I hear you. Well, Marissa, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. No, I think we covered it. Okay. Well, can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I hoard quotes. (laughs) So it's like a little like asking to pick favorite children, but one quote that I love, because I think it has a lot to do with kind of the story of me and my work life and how I came to write this book. It's a proverb. Until the lion learns how to write, every story will glorify the hunter. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One thing that's in the book that I love is research showing that disagreeable people, so people that are not very likable, let's say, and disagreeableness is one of the, or agreeableness, one of the five big personality Mm -hmm. trait categories. So disagreeable people are more likely to get ahead in business than agreeable people. So people that are agreeable people are more warm and likable. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's actually a detriment to getting ahead in the business world and being unlikable, being disagreeable is a better predictor of who rises to the top. And by the way, the studies also, the the authors of these studies always say, it doesn't mean they're better in that job. It just means they're more likely to get it. Right. Yeah. And I can just think of so many examples in in which folks who are less agreeable are are just all the more comfortable demanding the thing they want or like that the goal is. And whereas I'm I'm pretty agreeable, whereas sometimes I'm just like, well, okay, I guess we could do that your way. (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually. No, this is not optimal per the objectives. Fix it now. (laughs) You know? Totally. Absolutely. And I, by the way, and every person. I'm like the highest on the continuum of agreeable uh-huh. that you could possibly be, which says a lot about why I never made it to the top in that world, but it is what it is. <laughs> I'm happier now. Certainly. How about a favorite book? Again, uh, it's hard. One book. Can I say two books? Oh, sure. One book that gave me sort of some of my best foundational understanding of human behavior is a book from the 80s from a, a psychologist 
called uh, Nathaniel Brandon. And the title is terrible. Clearly needed some marketing help, but it's called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And it really opened my eyes and was a paradigm changing book for me. And I understood myself and, and people in a totally new way. So I love that book. And then when I was going through a hard time at Facebook, I read this other book that really got me into sort of another paradigm shift and it got me into meditation and changed my life in other ways. And that is called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Thank you. You're welcome. And how about a favorite tool? Something you use to help you be awesome at your job. Does meditation count? Oh, sure. I would say I wouldn't have been able to write the book without meditation because it was a foundation for me to learn discipline and a host of other life skills that I wouldn't have been able to write the book without. All right. And how about a favorite nugget, something that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? And they say, yes, that is so right and wise. Thank you, Marissa. (laughs) Nothing I ever say to my kids, that's for sure. That's never their reaction. (laughs) I would say that if you really get the fact that at the end of the day, all people want is to be heard, I think a lot of problems in this world would be solved because we're always trying to we speak to other people, we listen with the intent to sort of control them or control a situation and everything is about control. And it work, things work in the exact opposite way. When you try and control people, they rebel in ways big and small. But if you really try and understand people, things have a way of, of working themselves out. When people feel heard, they are empowered and they're empowered to fix their own problems and whatever. So I think that's a, a very underestimated concept when it comes to communication. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? They can find me on Twitter at Marissa Beth, and it's M-A-R-I-S-S-A, Beth, B-E-T-H, or O-R-R, at Marissa Beth Orr. At On Medium, it's just at Marissa Orr, and leanoutthebook.com, but also it's on Amazon for pre-order, but leanoutthebook.com is the book site. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Turn inward know who you are and hold on to that regardless of what those around you are doing or saying. Just be you. Beautiful. How's that for a cliched ending? (laughs) Oh, it was fun. Well, Marissa, I wish you all the best. Keep on doing the good work and have fun with it. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I think for me, my huge takeaway was Marissa's take that, you know, men and women have differences, and that's only offensive or troublesome if you are ascribing a value judgment to those differences. And again, I mentioned the consumer marketing behavior piece, and I think if you look at it through that lens, it really does become way less kind of personal, intense, potentially offensive. Like something like 94% of of chewing tobacco sales are, are made to men. And that's just sort of a fact and and advertising dollars and marketing spend on on that product will be pointed at men and most would not find that offensive. It, it's just sort of a fact. And you know, you might find it offensive if you say that's a terrible, nasty, disgusting, sickening habit and men are immature and they need to have better impulse control in order to to not engage in such filthy behaviors that are irresponsible and wasting money and addictive. I don't know, whatever. You can decide a value judgment and then now maybe that's offensive. How dare you, you know, say that about men when it is simply a 
fact in terms of, of how it works. So I think that's just really interesting to think about what is it that we find offensive and why do we find it offensive and what value judgments are we placing on it? And that could apply to, to gender things or any number of things. And it's just sort of a, a power tool for an extra dose of self-awareness. So I'll be forever grateful for Marissa for, for sharing that perspective that's really sticking with me. And I hope you enjoyed it too. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced, including plenty of research is at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP449. Our next guest is Jason Hansen. He's another Navy SEAL who's got some inspiring perspectives about high performance. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.